It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to day seven of the Eurocopa podcast, sponsored by Sling Latino. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thanks for joining us yet again. In order to review today's three games, as well as preview tomorrow's games, I'm joined by a brand new group of co-hosts. Returning co-host Chris Hennage is joined by World Soccer Talk podcast alum Morgan Green, and making his debut is Sam Kelly. Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, good to be here. Um, I'm a, an English uh, no, football writer. No, 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 you're not English. I moved out to... <laughs> Moved out to Buenos Aires just over six years ago, having been sort of blogging and, and then writing uh, in a more or less professional capacity about Argentine football for almost a decade now. Um, I write for ESPN FC. I write uh, freelance for uh, in the UK for, for when Saturday comes from time to time. Um, American uh, readers might very, very occasionally see me pop up in, in Howler magazine. I've written a couple of pieces. I, I write basically anybody who pays me, and I run my own um, English language Argentine football podcast as well, which is called Hand of Pod. And does that cover the Argentine league, the national team, both? Everything that falls under the umbrella Argentine football, really. So the the league, the national team, obviously when they play, we don't tend to talk too much about Argentine players in Europe. Although obviously, if there's a really big story, we might. Um, and then all of the, the ridiculous uh, political and security shenanigans and stuff that go on with the game down here, and obviously the Copa Libertadores and whatnot as well. So uh, we'll start with this. Has there been any sort of development with all the shenanigans that occurred last week where uh, the Argentine uh, Federation even suggested that they were going to... We know they're not, they're not going to pull out of the tournament, but has there been any fallback, any long-term uh, repercussions of that situation? Uh, it's a very complicated situation, and basically, what what was happening there was that um, a group of so, so the the Argentine Football Association, let, let's call it the AFA, uh, the the AFA executive committee is basically made up of of all of the club presidents um, or all of representatives from all of the clubs, because presidents or club vice presidents can vote um, from all of the Primera clubs, nearly all of the second division clubs, and then selected clubs from the lower divisions. So there are seventy five of them in total. And they, they vote for the AFA presidency. Uh, they're about to, at some point, soon go into their second attempt to do so in a year because there was quite a well-publicised failure to, to vote in a president um, in December last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously with football being, um, let's try and put this kindly, football being slightly bigger in Argentina than it is in the US, <laughs> uh, there are certain... Um, political factions it, it basically becomes very very political particularly with the televisation of football which i expect a lot of listeners are aware if they're interested in argentine football at the moment uh, is in argentina televised free to air and has been paid for by the government um the new government who came in last december have realized that the sums don't add up and, and are trying to make it pay for itself and in doing that they're basically ending the contracts that they have with the the afa um to screen the primera 
and they're trying to to make the AFA generally more transparent as well. So what they wanted to do was send in a couple of auditors. They wanted to do it with FIFA's um, say-so because the current president of Argentina, Mauricio Macri, is a former president of Boca Juniors, so he's fully aware of how the football world works. He's aware that FIFA has a very dim view of, of what it sees as uh, government interference within football associations. Um, but when this audit was first announced, a lot of the um, competing factions and certain um, candidates for the AFA presidency um, basically took exception to it. And as a kind of political power play, we started to hear this stuff on Sunday night, Monday morning, um, that uh, one of the options that they could have if they were forced to to undergo what they referred to as a government intervention um, would be for, for the national team to be pulled out voluntarily of the Copa America. Uh, which obviously hasn't happened. It was it was a, a sort of bit of a, a dick measuring contest, if you like. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so what has first ever happened... usage of dick measuring contests on the World Soccer Time podcast? So congrats on that. So, sorry for the mental image, especially as these are mostly very old men we're talking about. But um, <laughs> what eventually happened was that the the AFA um, presidential election, which which was scheduled originally for the thirtieth of this month has now been put back by at least 90 days in order to give the government time to put these auditors in. Uh, FIFA are going to be sending down an auditor as well uh, because they're, they're, uh, they're investigating what happens to all of the, the government funds, obviously the public funds that have been spent on televised football in the last few years. So that's where it sort of comes from. And it's all a, a ridiculously sort of blown out of proportion and everything. And the story is not over by any means. There's going to be a lot more developments on that in the next few months. But stuff at the AFA can change from one day for from from one day to another 180 degrees so um well good well luckily luckily we have yeah luckily we have you to tell a report on it for us and let us uh, and update us on it every two or three days when you're on the podcast so that's cool all right guys let's get into the reviews Chris, let's start with you. Costa Rica, nil-nil draw with Paraguay. Actually, today's games, let's just agree that they were they were kind of a bore fest. Uh, one goal in three games. Uh so not fun. And my Indy 11, my beloved Indy 11 also played a nil-nil draw. So it's been a boring day of soccer. So let's start with Costa Rica, Paraguay. Super feisty game, Chris. Both teams kind of nullified each other, but the the big moments were really tackles as opposed to any passes, any real chance creation. To talk, talk to me about this game. I, I think you nailed it expertly in the, the question. The, the, the tackles were the talking points. I thought uh, Kendall Watson was... There are sometimes I question what goes through that man's head because right. he does the most ludicrous things on a football pitch um, at times. And I mean, look, Costa Rica are a strong defensive team. They got to the final eight of the World Cup. You don't do that by being porous at the back. For Paraguay, my feeling with them is, again, they've brought in uh, Santa Bria to replace Rocky Santa Cruz. I would have liked to have seen him start personally just because of the form he's had with Hihon this season. It, it's been a... It's something of a breakout year for him um, at club level. And I, and I feel as if he just has that little X factor to him. He's a, a very smart, intelligent striker in terms of his positioning and the way that he plays the game. And I think it's the kind of thing that you need in a game like this where it is very tight and both defences are very solid. Um, from a Costa Rican perspective, again, I thought it was it was solid, if not spectacular. I think that they're going to need to improve somewhat if they want to achieve their potential and, and build on that World Cup. But as, as you said, it, it was all about the defences. They, they were two very stern defensive performances. And I'm sure if, uh, you know, if, if like myself, you grew up on Baresi and Maldini, you can kind of appreciate that somewhat. 
Morgan, anything to add to that in terms of what you saw, maybe even tactically? For me, the big thing was that in midfield, uh, both teams were pre- pretty narrow in midfield and didn't really, uh, like I said, they kind of nullified each other. Not, not There was no chance creation. And I, when we were doing the previews yesterday, I felt that Costa Rica, especially with the likes of Joel Campbell, would create a lot more than they did in this game. Yeah, I, I mean, I got to agree with you on that. You'd think with a guy like Joel Campbell, who, I mean, we, we saw what he did in the Greek League where he was you know, pretty much a superstar there. And even some of his flashes that he's had for Arsenal when he's gotten a chance to play, you would have thought he did a little bit more. But, you know, again, the teams really just kind of nullified each other, didn't really, you know, break one way or another. And in a game like that, really all it does is take one, you know, solid break and, you know, you got to – you create a chance but neither team gave that up so really uh you know again i gotta agree with you it was kind of you know both teams nullified each other it was a little bit of a snooze fest i know i kind of drifted in and out of this game watching it thinking oh well and you know some with them being in the united states group and everything like that it's kind of what you would have what you were expecting going into this game you thought these two were gonna kind of nullify each other and that was that's probably the best thing for the united states to go forward if they do go forward that these two played out to that nil-nil draw yeah sam that's really uh, i know you're not stateside but for morgan and i that's been and chris now uh that's been the talking point really from this game is that this was a good result for the u.s men's national team because uh it's a draw they they're only a point each now uh and then on top of that you have the fact that they only they didn't score any goals so there's no goal difference uh improved either so talk to me about that how do you feel how do you how did you contextualize the win, uh, the loss for U.S. men's national team yesterday? Do you think they are able to finish second in this group? I think they're definitely um, are, are still in with a chance. If if today's two teams from Group A uh, are going to play like that throughout the <laughs> throughout the group stage, um, one thing I did wonder with Costa Rica. I mean, I've I've obviously not seen anywhere near as much of of any of the Conmebol sides as you guys have. We don't get the Conmebol. Uh, qualifiers televised down here, um, but I did. We do, but we don't really watch them. So yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did wonder with with Costa Rica whether they're um, sort of relatively, let's say, comparatively um, uh, negative approach mm. um, to today had anything to do with losing Keylor Navas at relatively right. short notice ahead of the tournament. I think it was was it Monday or Tuesday that it was officially yeah. ruled out. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether they therefore decided, right, whoever we put in goal now is obviously going to be, by definition, nowhere near as good as Kane or Navas. Right. So let's sit back. I, I, I've no idea. For all I know, that's how Costa Rica play, play when Navas is in goal as well. Um, but it, it always looked to me like of, of, of the opening weekend matches, like that was going to be the most evenly matched of the, of the games, um, Costa Rica against Paraguay, partly because both managers are sort of tactical chameleons and are, and are very good at grinding out the results. Partly because Paraguay, especially in the last two, um, the, the, the last two, let's say, uh, if, if you'll forgive me for saying it, in inverted commas, proper um, Copas America, uh, have How drawn dare you. a hell of a lot of games. I think they've drawn something like seven of the last ten matches they've played right. in, in the last two editions of, of the Copa. Um, as and well actually, as, as, you, as you point out, Sam, that's a good point because in a lot of those games, it has been Kaylor Navas that has uh, that has led to those draws. He's the one that's converted. Uh, what were possible losses into draws or sometimes wins? So yeah, that's a good point. And even like, I mean, the last time I really saw Costa Rica play, well, in fact, not not even really. The, the last time I saw Costa Rica play before today was was during the World Cup two years ago, mm-hmm. when obviously Navas was uh, was one of the players of the tournament for yeah. for any team. Um, I think it's worth noting as well that Costa Rica 
they're not traditionally big scorers. Two or more goals in three of the last 14 games they've played. So I, I think Sam makes a fantastic point in the sense that with, with Kelo Navas, they're, they're able to take a few more risks. But even then, they're not habitually high scorers. It tends to be a 1-0 or a 1-1 or a 0-0. It, it is very narrow uh, margins for Costa Rica. And, and in that regard, I'm not hugely surprised to see them draw this game. The same could be said for Paraguay as well, because Paraguay um, uh, are missing arguably their most important midfielder, Nestor Ortigosa, who plays for San Lorenzo here in Buenos Aires and um, got got injured uh, in in the final weekend of regular season action a couple of weeks ago in the Argentine League, and as a result is is missing this um, this this competition. They they have a couple of other Argentine-based players who are fantastic. They have Oscar Romero, who played most of the game today. Um, and, and struggled really to come into it. And they have Miguel Almiron, who who was one of the best players this season for Lanús, who've just won the championship, and who stayed on the bench. I don't, I don't think he came off the bench at all. I don't think he got a single minute today, which, mm. which surprised a lot of people down here, at least. Because, of course, Paraguay's manager, Ramon Diaz, is, is Argentine and, and knows the Argentine league very well. Um, but the fact should, that should I be surprised that Juan Iturbe didn't come on at all? Yeah, Sam? I was going to ask about Iturbe. I think possibly, but I mean... I've. I've I've not seen how much he's played for Bournemouth this uh, not so far much. This year. He's he's had a so maybe one I, or I'm two. Quite, uh, a little subs. bit more than yourself, Sam. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I kind of wonder whether that had something to do with it as well. And and I think that Ortigosa's loss in midfield because he's really been since Diaz took charge, he's been like the the engine room of of um, I almost said San Lorenzo then, but of, of Paraguay's midfield. Um, and, and tremendously reliable from set pieces, especially penalties. But but he's, he can take a mean free kick as well. Um, and and he's been like almost one of the first names on the team sheet for Diaz. Um, and so I, I kind of think maybe he wanted to set out his stall. And and I suspect as well that Costa Rica were happy to do this too, get a point early on, um, and then try and nick something in in the next couple of games. Obviously, but but sort of just both of them clean sheet early on, get on get on the on the points board. Um, you know, especially after the result yesterday, you can look at it as okay. The, the states now have have a chance to come back into it, but from the point of view of the two clubs, uh, two clubs, the two, the two national teams who played today, they're thinking, okay, neither of us are bottom of the group now, um, at least after one game. And right. if we can take something from the states in in the next match when we play them, we're still going to be above them, um, and and we can then try and push on for second place. I can't remember who plays who and in which order from now on, but uh, you know, maybe that kind of psychology comes into it in a way sure chris let's go to the next game of the day uh haiti losing to peru when we were doing previews yesterday i actually felt that haiti uh would be able to create some chances with the the speed they have on the wings but it was actually peru who was by far the superior team in this game by far uh they were unlucky not to score more than the one goal that they won by especially in wide areas incredibly good crossing and uh they definitely deserve to win Mm, the, the crossing, I'm sure, please Alberto Solano, which allows me to, to <laughs> reference perhaps my, my favourite Peruvian player ever for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. I, I think, look, if you're looking to, to perhaps single out a whipping boy at this tournament, you're looking at Haiti. Um, and we talked about it on the preview. It's just a simple case of the lack of quality. Um, you look at their players across the board. There's not many playing in top leagues, if any. It's a lot of second-tier guys. Um, and I think in, in how that, dare you so, suggest the NASL is second tier, Chris? I said a lot of, not exclusively. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he says dancing through a loophole. Um, 
And I think that tells because if, if you're going to, to have that kind of makeup in your team, you're going to have to then be exceptionally organized. You're going to have to be like Greece in, in 2004, who again had a higher standard to be in with. But you, you see the point that I'm uh, alluding to is that, again, if you have such a talent drop-off, you have to be exceptionally organized. And I think, look, to, to look at this Peru squad, a large number of them play at home. Um, but they have enough sprinkling of quality, I think, in the likes of Tapia, of, of Feyenoord, Paolo Guerrero, who, again, for me, just doesn't seem affected by time at all. Um, and I think that told him in the end. It, it was going to be a case of, I think, when the first came, I thought the floodgates would open personally. So I think Haiti can be quite proud that actually they pushed it to within a missed header of being a draw, which is, is a commendable right. performance for a team that is still so fresh to this, this stage. Yeah, Morgan, talk to me about that last-minute missed chance uh, before we started recording. It was, it was heartbreaking to see. It, it was, and it wasn't even just the fact that he missed the goal. It was You could just see the emotion on his face after he lost it, um, you know, after the game just kind of dropping to the ground, completely inconsolable. I mean, real tears of just sorrow. You know, you, you felt really bad for Belfort there, and, uh, you know, it just – it was a heartbreaking scene, but again, they Haiti do have a lot to be proud of when you consider how far they've come from, what, five, six years ago. Um, even though they are still considered the whipping boys, they've come a long way, especially you know against a team like Peru. And the way the Peru started the game, I mean, they came out like gangbusters, and honestly, I thought it was going to be a blowout at that point. They settled down. Peru kind of backed off a little bit, and they actually took it to Peru a couple of times. They had a couple of okay chances, nothing uh, too, too dangerous, but you know they played themselves into the game. And then, again, same thing in the second half. Peru started like gangbusters, kept it up a little bit, and then you know it, took, it basically came down to a Palo Guerrero diving, heading goal to lose the game. So, yeah, I mean, they did end up losing, but they do have a lot to be proud of, but that's still, I don't think that's uh, going to be enough to console uh, Mr. Belfort. Yeah. Sam, uh, the teams that we, the Haiti and Peru, I think we are all in agreement that are probably fighting for second place in this group though because the teams that we're going to talk about now, maybe spend 10 minutes on even, it was the, uh, Brazil and Ecuador. I thought there would be goals in this game but let's start the conversation with the fact that both of these teams f- seemed very fragmented. It really did feel like two teams that had not figured out how to connect their players, the, the defense and the midfield, and uh, definitely the forward lines. Uh, well, in, in the case of Brazil, quote unquote forward lines, since they don't really have a f- forward, uh, they felt very fragmented. And is that just an, a result of the fact that this this Brazil team is first of all unrecognizable, and then secondly, uh, the fact that they haven't learned how to play together just yet, both teams? I I think in Ecuador's case, um, it it. Could possibly be, but but there's also an element of um, sort of trying to find their feet still, and and it, they're a funny one because Ecuador have started uh, the the Conmebol World Cup qualifying campaign magnificently. Right. Um, I think everybody's played six games, and I'm going off the top of my head, but I think Ecuador have got four wins, three um, four wins, one draw, and and one defeat. Um, and their joint top of, of the the qualifying table, they're, they're second behind uh, Uruguay on goal difference. Um, so they've started really well, um, and they've started picking up points away from Quito as well, which is, is something they had a problem with even during the last qualifying campaign when they actually made it to the World Cup. Um, 
but they're they're very much a a counter-attacking side. I mean, I I enjoy watching them. Uh, they're they're open. They they attack with pace. They have some skillful forwards. Eno Valencia, who's who's had a, a a fine couple of seasons really with with West Ham, um, and um, and 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 they they do a very good job there. But I think both of these teams prefer to play on the counter. Obviously, we we all know how Brazil have played under under Dunga and, and historically, just in general, over the last sort of the majority of the last twenty years or so as well. Um, under any managers, both of them prefer to to sort of keep a clean sheet first and and then burst forward. Albeit they do it in different ways, um, and I was kind of surprised because it seems like Dunga, especially the way Brazil went at it in the first half hour. I don't know whether he wants to just try something different. Whether he's decided, oh, you know what, everyone hates me anyway, so so let's go <laughs> for this or, or what. But it was, I mean, honestly, as somebody who doesn't follow the Brazilian national team incredibly closely, but, but manages to catch sort of most of their World Cup qualifiers and, and most of their big tournament games. It didn't look like a Dunga national team to me. Um, they actually looked like they wanted to try and keep hold of the ball, play it around a bit. I wouldn't say they looked like they were enjoying themselves in in the way that we think of if we think of like the 1970 or the 1982 Brazil sides, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't look like Dunga's just sort of typical hard-hitting sort of attritional football either um and and so it was a bit weird and it, it was i mean it started off at a cracking pelt the game very very open early on and then it settled down a bit but was still good enough and then in the last 20 minutes i thought it just dropped off a cliff um it, it was you know you were 70 minutes onwards more or less from from the ecuador goal that got disallowed um right. it, it it seemed to really just become a bit of a snooze fest um but yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if both of them look like sort of, I guess the parlance would be broken teams, t- teams who, who don't have much of an, an immediate connection between the midfield and the attack, or, or rather don't have much of a midfield between the defence and the attack, it's because they're both kind of set up to play that way. They're both set up to play on the counter. Um, Ecuador, perhaps, as I say, slightly more open, slightly more forward-looking normally um, at the moment. But by and large, I, I wasn't too surprised that it was low scoring. I was, I was certainly surprised there were no goals at all, but I wasn't too surprised that it was a low scoring game, let's say. Can I just ask, Sam, out of curiosity, the, the things that I see kind of uh, Rupert Fryer and, and people talking about, the, the dour edge that Dunga uh, has instilled, something that you, you touched on there. As someone who I think is, is fairly objective on the situation, do you see why he instills that in the team, or, or are you kind of more of the camp that thinks it is such a kind of really stark departure from Brazil that it can't be a good thing? I, I think that there's, as I hinted, it, it, it seems to me, and obviously I mean, I'm I'm a little bit of an outsider here uh, because I mean I'm, I'm English and, and uh, you know. Um, but my sort of understanding from from talking to to people like Rupert is that in really since the eighty two World Cup, which Brazil consider they were almost sort of kicked out of um, by by the much more physical Europeans, that, that there's been a, a conscious effort on their part to to to, to build themselves up and and to to almost prize the physical ahead of. Um, the the technique in the national team now, and obviously that's something that that Dunga himself, not just as a manager, but also back when he was a player, embodies. And it, it's almost quite poetic that today's game took took place in the Rose Bowl, 
which is the same stadium that Dunga lifted the World Cup in right. 22 years ago. Um, and so he's almost the, I, I guess, the, the the poster boy for this, at least in in, in the eyes of of international football watchers um, down the last couple of decades. Um, and I, I, I can, I, I don't know whether it's a, a, a desire to instill the same kind of image in the national team that he had as a player, because of course there are loads of, of examples of, of goalkeepers or hard hitting centre backs or defensive midfielders who, who go into management and whose teams play wonderfully attractive football. Uh, Jose Peckerman, the, the Argentine the manager of Argentina in, in 2006, who's now, who's now the Colombian national team boss, he was a defensive midfielder during most of his playing career, um, for, for example. Um, but in, in Dunga's case, certainly it, it seems to be that there's this, A, an attitude of just, I don't care what the press think, I don't care what the fans think or anything, it's, it's the result comes first. And in his opinion, the best way of getting a result is to play this way. Um, and B, it's a more general historical trend um within brazilian football since as i say i i think and certainly you know books i've read and people i've talked to seem to agree uh since the 1982 world cup um that's been this almost kind of reaction you know it's like we have to be more what they see as european than the europeans uh that they have to prize the physical above above everything else um and i don't know how much of a reaction against that is happening i don't know how much of of anything like that there is but certainly the players that brazil turn out at the moment seem to be um particularly well suited to that kind of game and perhaps not so well suited to the the the, the image that nike nike still tried to sell to the world of the, the jogo bonito um i think right. we can all agree that that's uh kind of dead by now chris we, we talked so much about uh the fact that brazil don't have a good forward but Myself and a lot of people just seem to forget that they probably haven't had a decent goalkeeper since Dida, the AC Milan goalkeeper, had two or three years when he was a quality goalkeeper. So when you saw what happened with Allison today, which should have been given a goal, uh, are Brazil currently in a situation where they lack a striker, arguably lack a good central midfielder, as well as are going through probably a really poor time with goalkeepers as well? I mean, I have to say, I think Julio Cesar has been a sensational goalkeeper. Um, mm. uh, granted, he, he's not um, starting for them at the minute. I, I think the difficulty you have with, with international teams, period, is, is there is always a, a transitional situation where the, the players that perhaps once carried you are, are not of the right age to be doing that and you need to usher in the next generation. Now, in an ideal world, talking from a, a development standpoint, you want to do that progressionally. You want to to do it in a way that allows the the younger members of that squad an opportunity to integrate and grow without the pressure of being expected to perform instantly. I'm not sure if Brazil have that opportunity in this precise moment because it is such a, a juggernaut. And and the thing is as well that <clears throat> there's so much so much so much politics attached to to Brazil and and even just the selections. You know that we've talked about already the the stories of uh, marketing and sponsorship having a say over who's picked for the squad and who travels and how much they play and these kind of things. Now, again, that's unlikely to impact them at Copa America, but I think you sometimes you have to look at the start of the journey to understand how you got to the point that you're at. When you're dictating your friendlies such a way, I think it's going to impact your tournament squads as well. And in terms of the striking situation, Jonas is a funny one because he's playing in Portugal and 
someone that is, is friends with Andy Brassel, who, again, knows Portugal better than some Portuguese people, I find. <laughs> it, it can be such a difficult league to truly quantify because for every striker like Falcao, for example, who seems an apt suggestion given the, the topic of conversation, mm. you will have a forward who like Sir Jackson Martinez and then struggles to do it elsewhere. And consequently... When I watch him, I just have this horrible feeling that Jonas is more like Jackson Martinez than Falcao. I could be horrendously wrong on this, but that is my feeling. And at that point, you say, okay, well, time to put Gabriel in. But then you look at the situation he finds himself in. He's the new Neymar, supposedly. When actually, if you watch him, he's not like Neymar at all. They're very different players. They're a similar size, but after that, you know, I I wrote in, in something this week, after the fact they play for Santos, they've got quite daft hair and they're the same height. There's not a lot of similarities between the two guys. They're very different players. I think Gabriel is, is a bit more in the mould of someone like Sergio Aguero, for example. That's a great striker to have, but then it's how do you play him? I tweeted out tonight, maybe play him off Honus as, as sort of a number 10 almost and give him a chance to run at the defence. But even then, it's, it's, it is a difficulty. and I think it's a transitional phase for Brazil. And yeah. and when they come out of it, I think they'll be much better for it. Morgan, uh, we we can talk about the the effect or the development of Gabigol and players like that. But one player that Brazil relies heavily on right now, especially in the absence of Neymar, is Willian. And as a Chelsea supporter, uh, very unbiased Chelsea supporter, uh, talk to me about what you see, uh, what what impact Willian has on this Brazil team. Well, I think after the season he's had, it's going to be, I don't know, it's going to be a little tough for him to have an impact. He just, you saw as the season progressed, he just wore down. Um, you know, he played a lot of minutes this year. I think he was top two or three uh, aside from a cup. I think he spent a little bit of time out of injury earlier in the season, but there wasn't really a lot of rest for him. So I think you're looking at a Willian who is actually quite worn down. Hopefully these couple of weeks for his sake, allowed him to catch his breath a little bit, and you know maybe we'll see a little bit, but I don't think we're going to be seeing peak Willian this tournament. We're not going to see the guy who's you know blazing down the wings, putting in good crosses, and we saw a little bit of it today with him uh, playing a couple one twos with Danny Alves, and Alves again is a player that you know to have behind him is a good thing for him because you can kind of lay it off and let him kind of go down the wing and ghost into the middle a little bit, but. For the most part, I think, you know, Willie, and he's a good player. He's going to do what he can, but I, I just get the feeling, and I saw it a little bit today, kind of as the game wore on, it's, it just feels like he starts off hot and then just kind of drifts himself out of the game. He just it, it just doesn't seem like he has the gas in the tank to really go the full 90 minutes anymore just based off of the season that he's had. So I I don't yeah. know, man. It's, it's tough when you've got a guy that, you know, a, a top team – I was a top team in England, not this year, but I yeah, just relied on him so much and played him so much this year. I mean, that's a lot of football. And we, it happens to players. I mean, it happened to, um, you know, who was it? Uh, Sergio, not Sergio, but David Silva a couple of years ago with Manchester City. I mean, he started off so well and just kind of played so much football between City and Spain that he just wore himself down and he went through a period where he just did not look good just because he was tired all the time. Mm-hmm. Sam, another player that I think Brazil need to, and this would be our last question on Brazil, uh, that Brazil really need to incorporate, I think, is Lucas Moura. I think he has 
bags of talent, a little inconsistent. But if if Dunga can find a, find a way to incorporate the brilliance of Coutinho, Lucas Mora, and Willian, I think he can uh, circumvent the issues at the forward position. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, we, we we saw it today when Lucas Mora came off the bench with what was it about twenty minutes, minutes yeah. or so to go. Yeah. Um, and I mean, William, actually, immediately, yeah. it, it's it, it's not like the game completely transformed and all, all of a sudden he was single-handedly running it and, and running Ecuador's backline ragged. But immediately, Brazil's attack looked like it had a bit more of a focal point. Um, and I mean, obviously, a, a, apart from uh, the, uh, I think it was Enel Valencia, wasn't it? The, the goal that got disallowed after Alisson yes. chested it into his own net. Apart from that, the the outstanding memory um, of the last sort of quarter of the game was was Lucas Moura's header, mm-hmm. which on the TV and I'm sure to most of the people in the stadium looked like it had gone in for a second, uh, but it turned out to be just wide. And yeah, okay, you can say, oh, that was whatever. That that, that was a pretty shocking miss, or he, he could have directed it better on target, at least forced a save from the goalkeeper or whatever. But he got into the position. Um, he very very nearly scored, and it was something that uh, Brazil hadn't really looked like doing up until that point. So th- there has to be space for him, you would think. And, and just the same with, I, I saw a fair few people um, on Twitter uh, rather incensed when came on when, when Lucas Moura came on, but it wasn't Lucas Lima coming on. And right. Lucas Lima ended up just coming on with about three minutes left. Um, and people wanted him to, to get more time as well. Um, and, and, and this is where we get back to, to Dunga's whole sort of philosophy of, of of the game he he seems to be very much safety first and and less willing to give these uh talented attacking players some time and it's one of the really interesting things about brazil in this copa america centenario is the fact that they're going to be placing so much more emphasis on the olympics the fact that that neymar is being called up for the olympics the fact that there are various other teams um i had a quick look and brazil's starting lineup for today's game um included seven Six, seven, seven players who before today didn't have 15 caps for the national team. Um, so there's very much the sort of hope that some of these hitherto lesser lights, players like Felipe Coutinho, uh, perhaps Lucas Moura, as, as, as we say, um, can can take this opportunity, who, who've not previously had an opportunity from Dunga, who perhaps have only got this opportunity because he's more focused on Rio de Janeiro 2016. Um, to to prove him wrong, to say, look, you've been ignoring me for so long, but I deserve a place as well. Um, if they if they're going to take that opportunity, then they're going to have to do more impressively than they did today. It has to be said. But certainly, Lucas Moura is 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 right up in that group of of, of players. Chris, let's start a previous here with the Jamaica versus Venezuela. Uh, a year ago, Jamaica beat Venezuela two one, uh, and uh, I think the framework for this conversation should begin with uh, the fact that. In spite of the fact we didn't see too many goals today, I think this is a goal a game we will see goals because both these teams have suspect defenses, uh, and I think there will be goals in this. I'm going with like a three-two win for uh, for Venice, uh, for Jamaica. I mean, the Jamaica does have the Premier League winning captain in its team, um, and Michael Hector, duh. Said <laughs> a very passionate Chelsea fan. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I, I do see why you say that. Um, I, I do understand the, the reasoning, if nothing else. The, the thing with Jamaica is I've, I've sort of tipped them as dark horses because I was quite impressed with them during the Gold Cup. I, I think that what they've gained is, is an actual structure 
to just their play in general. I think Jamaica's always had talented players, whether they be dual nationals from from England, um, you know, taking advantage of their their ancestry, or actually players who've, who've come through the system, like Ricardo Fuller. Um, but it, they always felt quite disjointed. I feel personally as if of the two sides, and, and again, I must confess to not seeing a huge wealth of Venezuela, that Jamaica will be more organised, and I, I think they will win it. I'm not sure if it'll be as, as goal-heavy as you're suggesting, though. I feel it could actually be, be quite a comfortable 2-0 um, hmm. for for Jamaica. The the thing, and again, it, it could be looking at this with, with quite a Euro-centric mind, I just look at, at Solomon Rondon um, as, as that number nine, and, and Having watched him this season, and so often you do draw on club form because of it's your your biggest sample size. He's just looked very laboured this season for me with West Brom. Now that could partly because the Premier League is a very fast league. It doesn't change the fact that to me, he he doesn't look he doesn't look nearly as dangerous as when I used to watch him at Zenit. I used to watch him, and, and I remember when he was linked to the Premier League at first. I thought, wow, whoever gets him is, is going to get one heck of a striker. He's he's a very talented forward. Yet watching him for for West Brom, he, he always felt very sluggish. Um, that could change with his national team, of course. But I do feel as if Jamaica are in, in a much better position for for this to win because I, I feel as if Giles Barnes is the kind of man who can spark something in them and lead them forward, just like he did during the the Gold Cup. Yeah, What's that, Morgan? So, so Tony Pulis has that effect on a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, I was just going to say it might have something to do with Tony Pulis. <laughs> Uh, Morgan, let's talk about the other game and uh, definitely the more exciting game uh, tomorrow in terms of the standing of these two teams. Uh, Mexico plays Uruguay. Mexico comes into this game in terrific form. Uh, won five on the trot and and uh, we know they have a striker in uh, my beloved Chicharito who's had a terrific season at Leverkusen. And Uruguay, on the other hand, are missing Suarez. So uh, dare I say that Mexico might pull this one off? even though we know the incredible history Uruguay has in this competition. Yeah. I'm, it's both of these teams because, again, we've seen both good and bad Mexico and both good and bad Uruguay, but we've seen bad Uruguay end up winning tournaments. Obviously, losing Luis Suarez is huge, but I think they got another guy. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> oh, oh, Cavani. Yeah, they've got Edison Cavani. We've heard of him. I can uh, step in. Um, so I, I don't think that Uruguay is going to be lacking for goals. What it's going to come down to, I think you're right, it's going to be the forward. It's going to be, is Chicharito going to be the Chicharito of, you know, Leverkusen in the good, or Manchester United in the good days, or are we going to see, uh, you know, a Chicharito that struggles against a physical defense? Because, you know, Uruguay does have a pretty good defense up there. They've got a couple of uh, players who know how to get the finals. They've got, a, you know, a team that basically knows how to win. So, you know, it's going to, I think it's probably going to be a good game. It probably could be the game of the first round uh, when you're looking at kind of the form and the two teams that are involved right now with it. But, um, you know, for the most part, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Chicharito is going to be the biggest thing as, as he goes. I think Mexico is going to go in this tournament. Yeah, Sam, uh, Morgan makes a good point about that Uruguay defense and uh, the likes of Chicharito and Gordado will really have to be at their best to get past what's going to be one of the defenses of the tournament. They will, yeah. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Ecuador, a second on goal difference in the South American World Cup, qualifying after six games. And they're second to Uruguay. 
Um, and the reason that they're second on goal difference, because both Uruguay and Ecuador have scored 12 goals, it's all down to the defence. Um, Uruguay in six games only conceded four, which is joint best in the South American group, along with Argentina. Um, and the other thing is that, funnily enough, the, the attack might not miss uh, Suarez's goal scoring as much as, as you might initially think, because I've just had a very quick look down to, to confirm what I suspected um, on the uh, the South American uh, World Cup qualifying Wikipedia page, just to quickly make sure before saying this, and it turns out I was right. Um, Suarez has only scored one goal of the 12 that Uruguay have scored so far in qualifying. Um, obviously, he brings a lot more to an attack than just goal scoring. He's a fantastic team player as well. He, he does a, a fine job of leading the line and bringing other players in. But um, Diego Godin, I think um, that uh, Cáceres and definitely Cabani have all scored more than him. And the fact that a couple of those players are defenders um, <laughs> indicates another one of, of Uruguay's strengths, which set is pieces, yeah. attacking from set pieces. Um, they're a very, very well-drilled team. They had... A fairly underwhelming um, 2014 World Cup qualifying campaign, followed by a not particularly uh, sort of mind-blowing Copa America last year. But they've started the, these new World Cup qualifiers in really good form. Um, their very first match, they got off to a cracking start. They, they won 2-0 away to Bolivia, um, which obviously, you know, just a, a win over Bolivia for most of the bigger footballing nations in South America is nothing unusual, but a win over Bolivia in Bolivia is another matter entirely because of the altitude that that, that, that they're playing at. Um, and when you bear in mind that particularly Uruguay, Brazil, Argentina are all used to playing their home games at, at sea level. Um, so Uruguay have, have come together again fantastically. They've got a manager who has been there and done absolutely everything before. They've got a collection of players who've been and done everything before. And they're starting to weave into that squad now um, some younger players who, who look pretty talented as well. So I think it, it's going to be tricky. Um, I agree that, that it should be the standout game of, of, of tomorrow. Um, I'm looking very much forward to seeing it, but I, I suspect that Uruguay are going to have a bit too much just because they've got that extra sort of bit of, of nous and, and experience and grit and determination and, let's face it as well, just the willingness to, to be bastards, if that's what the occasion <laughs> requires as well. There's a bit of a championship in that Uruguay team too. Right, definitely. Oh, a lot of championship players on there. We'll be back tomorrow to uh, review those games as well as talk about uh, Panama, Bolivia and the big one, Argentina versus Chile, uh, which is a rematch from last year's World Cup. Um, but in order to do that, we will be saying goodbye to Chris and Sam until Monday and Morgan uh, until later next week. And we'll be welcoming back Karthik Krishnayer, Robert Hay and uh, the debut of Juan Arango. So uh, on behalf of everyone here at World Soccer Talk, my name is Nabun Chopra. On behalf of Kristen Hennage, Morgan Green, and Sam Kelly, I bid you to enjoy your football. <laughs>